Good morning, my name is Brian Petrie. I am the Associate Pastor of Students and Family, and I'm excited to get to the opportunity to preach this morning. Um, that clip we just watched, it's got a lot of suspense built into it. Um, really, it's two and a half minutes of not much happening other than seeing what's processing behind Indiana Jones's, what's going on behind his head. And one of the things that we draw from it is that he's not just merely stepping off the cliff and then being surprised he didn't die. There's elements of um, belief and thought that's going into his choice to actually go ahead and make that step. And so if you were to put yourself in that clip, or if you maybe one of those guys that doesn't like Indiana Jones, maybe you're repelling off of the top of a cliff. And there's a few things that has to happen in your head as you do this. First, you need to know that the bridge that Indiana Jones was taking the step onto, you need to know that if there was a bridge there, that would be sufficient. That would give you the, the safety that you need to take the step past it. Or if you're repelling, um, I've done this, you, you need to know the details about the rope. You need to know that this rope was designed for this particular moment. This hardware is designed for this particular moment. And when you take the moment of when you lean into the rope, it can hold you. You, you need to know that. Second, you need to agree in your mind that not only could it support you, but it's actually there. That you're not just knowing the facts about the rope, you're not just knowing that it was designed for this particular moment, but you need to know that it's true, and it's true for you, and so you're going to go ahead and tie that rope to your harness. And then there's a third step, and the third step is really crucial. It's actually leaning onto that rope or taking the step onto the bridge. You can know that it's able to hold you. You can know that it was designed to hold you. You can tie it onto yourself, but unless you actually lean into it, well, faith. Indiana Jones calls it a leap of faith, and I propose to you that putting trust in something like a rope or a bridge or is not just like blind faith. It's not just stepping, hoping for the best, but it's being sure of what we hope for and being convinced of what we do not see and taking the step anyways. I've struggled with my faith over the years. Um, for a long time, I was convinced that my faith, or lack of, was a disqualification for me as a Christian. That because I didn't have this faith I thought everyone else had, that there was some, something fundamentally flawed with me as a person, and I was therefore unsavable by God. I wanted the faith, but something was just out of reach. And then I compare what I see in Scripture and what I believe theologically, and then I see that compared to my real-world experiences, and there's this tension, this head-to-head -head confrontation between faith, struggling with faith, and then still sinning. And, and I sin, and I conclude because I'm still sinning and I'm struggling with faith that whatever faith I have, it must really suck, Right? If I continue to keep on rebelling, if I keep on sinning, something's wrong. And then being the guy that I am, I take this conclusion of my faith that it's not great and combine that with the fact that I spent most of my life studying scripture and studying the Bible and studying theology and learning how to teach and counsel, being a pastor, and then I go into shame because why am I struggling with this if, if the rest of my life is dedicated to doing what it says. And then I sit in shame and I, I, I 
basically am in, in this pit, and I just wondered to myself and to God, how might me, Brian, in my boldness, somehow think that as I'm struggling with my faith that I could someday be face-to-face -face with God and have him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so that's the journey I've gone on, and one of struggling with faith. And now don't get me wrong, there's a ton of logical and theological fallacies there, but that's what happens when you combine real life with what you believe with what you read. There's things that just don't add up. And so I've had people in my life that have helped me with those fallacies and helped me with the theology, and that a lot of that's straightened out. But there's still something I stumbled with. Uh, by faith we are saved, but how do we actually have faith? How do we develop that? And I know I'm not the only person in the room that struggles with this, um, with the fear of their faith not being legit. But where does this fear come from? There's this parable in the, in, that Jesus tells, the parable of the talents, and it's in Matthew chapter 25. It's not our, our text for today, but in this parable there's this man, and he is the master of this property, and he has servants, and he goes off on this trip. And while he's on the trip, he gives jurisdiction to all the different servants to take care of the property while he's gone. And, and he gives them money, to, and he says, do what you can, make this as good as you can. I'm preaching, guys. I can't fix it. Um, <laughs> that is distracting, Matt. How do you do that? How, how do you just keep? How do you just keep going through that? Um, so in this parable, he goes on this journey, and, and he has these servants, and he gives them some money, and then he goes on the trip. And a couple of the servants, they take the money and they invest it, they trade with it, and they double the money they have. But then there's this third guy, and he is so excited to have this money, and he takes it such an honor of having the money that he doesn't want to lose it, so he buries it and sticks it in the ground. And, and then, well, you know this story, it, to really understand this entire parable, that's another sermon that we don't have for today. But when the master comes back, he talks to the two guys who had doubled the money, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And, and so as Christians, we, we look at this parable, and we see that the master is God, and that Christians, us, we, we, we're the servants. And I think there's something in all of us that we deeply desire to be told by God one day, well done, good and faithful servant, right? That, that is motivating. That, that, that pushes us through the stuff of life so that one day that we are told that. We deeply desire this, this deep-knit relationship with God, that we can be squarely face-to-face -face with God, have his face shine upon us, give us peace. There's this communion. Like, that's what we're designed for. That's what we want. That's what we're designed for, to be known and loved by God and to know and love God in return. But then there's sin and there's shame and there's lies, and we desire to please God as in desire with that relationship, but how do we do that? And in the book of Hebrews, the author tells us it's by faith. When Seth was younger, he's my five-year-old son, when he was younger, I taught him to give me fist bumps. And it's cute, and people like it, and they're like, oh, that's funny. But when I taught him to give me fist bumps, I said, here's what this means. When we fist bump, that means I love you and you love me back. That we're still on the same team and I'm proud of you. And, and that's a lot for a kid to understand, especially when he's two or three. But I, I said it to him enough times that he would understand what I'm talking about, and he could say it back to me. And so then we fist bump. 
when he's doing things mature and, and I'm proud of him, I, we give a fist bump and, and we both kind of have a glimmer in our eyes knowing what this means, that we're on the same team. Things are good. But then there's times, a lot of times, when he messes up and he sins and he's being a kid that is rebelling. And so then I have to discipline and we have to have conversations. But I always go back to the point of giving him a fist bump, right? I, I always want to go back to that place where he knows that we're still on the same team. Despite his, his behavior, there's nothing he can do to cause me to love him any less. And, and, and in some ways, I think that's what we want with God. It sounds weird to want to give God a fist bump, but we want to have this interaction, this, this closeness, this, yes, I know I'm jacked up, I know that there's all sorts of stuff wrong with me, but I still love you, and I know you love me back, and we're on the same team. And so how do we do that? How do we please God? And, and, and trying to please God, it kind of sounds like a dirty question. It's, it's like one of those that we, we want to flee from because for us to please God, that means there's some way that we can earn his favor. There's some, if only we do just the right things, if only we can outweigh the bad with the good, if, and, and that's works-based theology and it's wrong, but the assumption behind it is wrong. And we kind of flee from that whole concept of how do we please God with this? Can we please God? Well, Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we are today, and it's called the Hall of Faith. It's a recount of the people of old, as one translation puts it. And in this text, they say all these different people who have had faith and how they demonstrated it. I want to be reading in chapter 11, verse 1, where we pick up. Um, today, I am going to be in the, the net translation. That's the new English translation. It's a little bit different than what you have. Uh, I like the word choice better for this particular text, but if you're using the ESV or CSV or whatever you are used to, it's close enough that you'll be able to follow along. But what's, what I'll be reading and what's on the screen is going to be the Net Bible. Um, contextually, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Um, it, it just doesn't say. It's very different than Paul, and so the conclusion is, well, it's, it's not Paul, but we don't know who else it would be. There's some guesses, and I have some theories. You can talk to me later about that. But we know that whoever the author is was writing to the Jewish believers, and that these Jewish believers had a really firm foundation in their Hebrew faith, in their Jewish faith, in the Old Testament. Timeline-wise, it's kind of concluded that it's between 50 and 70 A.D., because in 70 A.D., the Jerusalem Temple was destroyed, and um, given the context and like what's in Hebrews, the author would have mentioned that. And so if it's not there, then they conclude it's before that. But the people, his audience, what's going on context-wise, they're being persecuted for their faith. Um, a lot of their friends are being persecuted. A lot of people are being removed, falling away from the faith. People are telling them they're crazy for believing in God. They've, they've got a lot of unanswered questions. They're saying things like, God, why, why aren't you doing anything? Where are you? How come this is happening? And then many of the people, they end up starting to lag in their faith some. And so the author, he, he's writing, or she's writing, to make the point that um, God is there. He exists. You need to believe that, and following him is worth it. It's an encouragement. And, and so with that as the background, hopefully you're able to find Hebrews by now. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 is where we're picking up. It says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for being convinced of what we do not see. For by it, the people of old received God's commendation. 
Um, that's not condemnation. That's how I read it for a long time. That's not what it says. For by it, the people of old received God's commendation. By faith, we understand that the worlds were set in order at God's command so that the visible has its origin in the invisible. By faith, Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain, and through his faith, he was commended as righteous because God commended him for his offering. And through his faith, he still speaks, though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he did not see death, and he was not, able, he was not found because God took him up. For before his removal, he had been commended as having pleased God. Verse 6, now without faith, it's impossible to please him. For the one who approaches God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We'll pause there. But it says the key to pleasing God, the only way to please God is by faith. The only way to please God is with active and enduring faith. And, and faith, according to the author of Hebrews, is relatively simple. Faith is believing that God exists and that following him is worth it. And then actually following him is the implied third step there. But that's it. Having faith is believing God's there and then following him, is worth, following him is worth it and then doing it. But if your story is anything like mine, actually doing that is a little bit harder than just saying that. Pastor J.D. Greer points out that the phrase, believe that he exists, is the sticky point. That some people say, well, there's the problem. How do you know that God exists? The author basically says you have to take some kind of blind leap of faith and then you have to say, I believe that God exists because, well, I believe that he exists. I believe because I believe. And, and you lean into that, but then things get really tough and sometimes it struggles. And honestly, that's the attitude I had for a long time. I believe because I believe. God, I want to believe and I want to please you. And so I'm just going to press this faith button and have more faith. Just just pray harder, try harder, trust harder. But that's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. They're saying to believe that he exists means that you believe God is as God reveals himself to be. And so then the next question is, how has God revealed himself to be? It'd be really cool if there's a chapter in the Bible that said, here's the five arguments for believing in God. Just, just read this, understand this, and you're good. But there's not. Instead, Scripture has time and time again when God speaks. And then the question becomes, do you recognize God speaking as the voice of God? Are you paying attention for that to be God's voice? That's one of the things why I teach the kids at VBS to watch for God, God's sightings. We hear God's voice in creation. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and that the earth proclaims his handiwork. Their voice goes through the earth and their words are heard to the end of the world. There's no place on earth you can go where God's voice is not heard. The argument that creation is just a result of nothing being blown up by nobody is, just, is not compelling. By, by instinct, that there's just, we, we can look and see there's God. Are you paying attention to that voice? But it's more than just creation. There's longings in your heart. There's longings for eternity. There's longings for legacy. There's moments when you experience things like romantic love. And, well, there's this atheist, Francis Crick, and he died in 2004, but he wrote a book called Astonishing Hypothesis. And he said, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will, the love you feel for, the love you feel for another human are, in fact, no more than the believer, the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. 
you are nothing but a pack of neurons. Really? Intuitively, we know that there's something more to the human experience than chemicals firing. We, we, we know that. And as a dad, there's moments that I can't just help to feel grateful. Times when my boys are getting together, times that we get to have, make different memories and have trips. And I just look at it and I can't help but to feel grateful. And C.S. Lewis once said that the atheist has the problem of experiencing these moments of gratitude, but not knowing who to thank. You also hear his voice in the Bible. If you're over the age of like 40 or 50 or whatever, Jenny said I shouldn't tell anyone under 40 they're old, but um, if, if you're at a certain age or if you live in a really old house like I do, you, you've seen these doors with keyholes that you can look through. And, and when you look through these keyholes, I, I can imagine a kid spying on their, on their sibling, and they look through and they kind of get a glimpse of what's going on. They get a glimpse of the reality of what's on the other side of that door, but maybe not the whole picture. And in some ways, that's how Scripture is. God reveals himself. He shares who he is, and we read it, and we spend time in it getting a glimpse of who God is, exactly how he's revealed himself to be. It's God saying, this is who I am. Yet there's a lot of questions to be answered. But when we read scripture, when we read of Jesus and the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus taught, we, we recognize him and we can say, that's it. That's him. That's my creator. I, I recognize the voice. And so simply through existing and hearing the voice of God and, and the many ways he's revealed himself, you can recognize the voices of God. And there's a word for this. Um, John Calvin, he calls it the sensus divinitus. The sensus divinitus, Latin, I think. And it works like, his other, like all your other senses, he says, if you pay attention to it. Elvin Plantinga, a philosopher, he, he, he talks about the sensus divinitus, and he says that it's inherent in every single person. Everyone has this sense of recognizing God as God. But then that kind of leads to a problem of, well, there's a whole lot of people that don't. There's a whole lot of people who are just blind to it, who reject it. And so Plantinga, he, he, he talks about how this is the effect of sin in their lives. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, he, he agrees with this, where he says that the inability to perceive God is a kind of spiritual sickness. It's being spiritually fallen, spiritually blind, and this is why we pray. We can't heal someone's heart through logical arguments, but the Holy Spirit restores and regenerates, and so we pray. Think of it like how you know certain things are wrong, like murder or genocide. Or, or imagine there's someone who's doing this like parenting seminar, and they teach you that if your toddler's crying, that you should just kick them a little bit, and then they'll stop crying, Right? And then they say, this is really effective, because you kick, you kick the toddler, and you kick the baby, and they stop crying. It teaches them that you're in charge. They're not going to cry again. But you're not going to listen to them, right? Before they even get to all the arguments, you just stop listening because you know that regardless of the reasoning, the, the basis of his argument is wrong. Kicking babies is wrong. So our moral conclusions, they're backed up by logic. There's this instinct that we have built into us about what is right and wrong. And I've got a buddy who studied apologetics at Denver Seminary, and he focused all his schooling on apologetics. And we talk a lot about all these different philosophical reasons for believing in God. And there's a ton of them, and they're good, and there's evidential reasons to believe in God. There's prophecies, and there's resurrection, and there's looking at the cause and effect, and all, all this different stuff that we can look to to understand how we can have the solid faith in who God is. 
but I'm convinced that it's not logic or apologetics that convinces someone of God's existence. Instead, it's the sensus divinitus, our, our sense of divine. Are we paying attention to God as he's revealed himself to us? It's taking God at his word and believing that he is as he says he is, and as the author of Hebrews wrote, faith is being sure of what we hope for and being convinced of what we do not see. And so you might be thinking to yourself, I just have such a hard time believing. I want to believe, Brian, I agree with you, this makes sense, but I just can't get to that next step. How do I believe? Life is hard. I've got questions of why is this happening? If God really loved me, why won't he heal me? And why did God allow the things in the Bible? You say to read the Bible and see who God is, but God did some pretty weird stuff in Scripture to a lot of different nations. What about hell? Isn't God's love enough? And, and so we, we think this in our head, and I feel you. Questions are part of faith. This is part of becoming a mature Christian, is asking all these questions and sitting in them and, and spending time with others as we process it. And in chapter 2 of Hebrews, this is where we find out that the audience of Hebrews is actually sitting, where they are asking these questions. And, and chapter 2 tells us that we don't have all the answers, but we have Jesus, so recognize his voice and lean into him because he is God. Charles Spurgeon, he teaches about faith, and he gleans from the Puritans, and I learned from a young age to when the Puritans teach something about God to pay attention. And, and so leaning on these guys, they say that faith is made up of three things, three parts. Knowledge, assent, and affiance. And assent and affiance, you might need to Google those quick, but we'll, we'll describe them. But knowledge is that you cannot believe what you do not know. If no one told you that NASA sent people to the moon and they walked on it, if no one ever showed you the pictures, then you are going to have a really hard time believing that there's people that have been on the moon, right? If you don't know, how do you believe? But yet there's people in this room who might say, I believe what the church says. Or I believe what the Bible says, but they don't actually know what the church says or what the Bible says. How do we have faith? Well, we need to know what we are putting our belief in. Paul says in Romans 10, how can they call on the one in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone to preach? And how can they preach unless they are sent? According to Paul and to Spurgeon, to have true faith, you should know something of the Bible. The second piece is assent. And assent is, uh, well, you might know something but not have faith. This is meaning that you need to know something but then also agree with it. I've had Bible teachers and professors in college who know the Bible so well, far better than I could ever hope to understand the Bible and know what it says, and they recognize it as historically significant. They might even recognize it as true. But that's where it lies for them. It's something that's interesting to study that has affected society. It's not something that they put their faith into. It's not them saying that no matter what's in this page, I believe it to be true. And then they go to the next page and they read, and there's things that they might have a really hard time understanding. And there might be even things they don't like, but there's this assent of saying, even though it says that, it's God's word and I believe it to be true. This is kind of how the Trinity works, or atoning sacrifice. There's categories of things that we know and believe and understand through Scripture, and there's parts that we it's just really, really difficult, but yet we believe it to be true because it's God's. But then there's the third step, and that's affiance, according to Spurgeon. Affiance. That's a new one I had to look up, but I think it's kind of the opposite of defiance. But 
someone might have all of this. They might have knowledge, they might have assent, but they not, might not actually have true faith because, well, there's more than just believing the truth and taking it as ours, but it's actually resting in it, making it our, our salvation, our own, something that we need. True faith leans on Christ. It's not going to save me to know that Christ is a Savior, but it's going to save me to know that he is my Savior. It, I will not be delivered from wrath of God by believing that Jesus' atonement and death on the cross was sufficient. But I will by making that atonement my trust, my refuge, where I put my faith. There's a difference here. And the essence is this. It's not the life buoy on a boat that saves someone. It's not knowing that the, that the buoy is there. It's not believing that this is a great invention and it has the ability to save, but it's actually holding on to the life buoy and clinging to it that saves. There's a third step there. It's like if there's a fire and in the fire, the upper room of a house, everyone's on the street looking at it and there's a kid in the upper room and there's no way for him to get out. And so there's a strong man and he goes and he stands underneath the window and he yells out to him, leap into my arms. There's a part of faith to know that that man is there. It's another part of faith to know that that man is strong enough to catch. But it's a third step to actually take that leap. Guys, you need to know that Christ died for your sins. You need to understand that Christ is able to save. But you are to believe that you're not, you need to know that unless in addition to that, if you put your trust in him to be your savior and be his forever, that's the part that saves. The only way to please God is with active and enduring faith. Faith is not an emotion. It's not less faith button. You guys remember those Staples easy buttons? Like, that was easy. Every single time that I wanted to have faith, like I just wish there was a button that I could push and then generate more faith and get through what I'm going through. Faith is not like that. Faith is being sure of what I hope for, being convinced of what I do not see. And I struggled for a long time thinking I did not have faith. And then once I got to the point of thinking maybe I do have faith, and then I got to the point of struggling with, do I have faith or do I just want faith? Do I just want it? Because you don't need to be unsure of whether or not you have faith. Either you know and you believe and you lean into it, or you don't. There's no gray area here. Either you, do, you know, you believe, you lean in, or you don't, and without it, you cannot please God. I chose this passage today partly because of how my journey of faith has developed, but partly because we're coming out of this series of Genesis. And as we're studying Genesis, we've, we've gone through the first 11 chapters, and the author of Hebrews looks at these different people throughout Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, and he says, look at them and the faith that they had. And we'll keep looking at them in 2023, but there's examples for understanding faith, and so I want to look at it. And so go back to your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 1, or chapter 11, verse 1 is where I'm going to start again. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. For by it the people of old received God's commendation, and by faith we understand that the worlds were set in order at God's command, so that the visible has its origin in the invisible. By faith, Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain, and through his faith, he was commended as righteous because God commended him for his offerings. And through his faith, he still speaks, though he is dead. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he did not see death 
and he was not to be found because God took him up. For before his removal, he had been commended as having pleased God. Verse 6, Now without faith it's impossible to please him. For the one who approaches God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Verse 7, I think. Let me make sure I don't go too far. Yeah, I'll read verse 7 as well. By faith, Noah, when he was warned about the things not yet seen, with reverent regard, he constructed the ark for the deliverance of his family. Through faith, he, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And then if you just keep reading row after row, verse after verse, there's all these different people who have faith, and they're famous for their faith, right? But did you notice what the author describes about them? Their faith is described in terms of some action. There's something they did that marks them as having this faith. Noah built, Abraham left, Jacob blesses, Jacob instructs, Moses chooses, Joshua fights. There's these different things that these guys do that gives them, that shows their faith. And so faith is synonymous with action. Apart from faith, apart from action, there is no faith. We just spent three months in the youth science school room talking about and studying the book of James and there's a class started today on James, actually, and if you haven't studied James recently, you should go there. But when you're studying James, the message is clear that faith without works is dead. And as I, we were teaching this and going through the book of James, one message that came, one illustration that came up was uh, of a seed that, well, the spring, Seth and Jenny and Simon and I, we, we went to Lowe's and we saw this kit for growing strawberries and it was like six dollars or something and it came with this metal pail and soil and seeds and it promised that by the end of the season you're going to have fruit and I said no you're not but it was cheap and it was a character building opportunity and so we bought it and we thought Let, let's try it and so we, we went home and Jenny and Seth they got the soil out and they planted the seeds and then Seth watered it and then the next day he watered it and then the next day he watered it and guess what? It didn't grow. This, the, and in this illustration, the seed is faith. And, sorry, the seed is faith, and, and the plant would be the works, the action that comes out of that faith. And so by looking at this plant, or la no plant, I conclude that we drown the seed. The seed is dead. I know it's, the seed's there. We put it there. And, and, and so I could probably make Seth really, really excited if I go over to Glenda and Russell's and take some clippings of their strawberry plants. And if I go bring it home and I just kind of stuff it in top of the soil. And I say, Seth, look, we have strawberries. And he'd be really excited thinking that we did it. We planted seeds, we watered it, and now we have fruit. But we know the truth behind it. The seed is still dead. And in reality, that fruit is dead too. It's cut from the vine and we are not successful. The, 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 apart from action, there is no faith. Unless the seed brings the, brings the fruit, the seed is dead. And so your belief doesn't become faith until you act upon it. Faith is believing the rope is going to hold you, but then actually leaning on it. It's, it's uh, God doesn't determine what kind of faith you have based on what you say, but what your life says is how one person put it. Um, there's a guy, J.D. Greer, a pastor, and he get, talks about faith, and he says that how you respond to tragedy or disappointment is a measurement of how you believe in God. 
or put in the positive, your ability to be joyful in things that are sad and sorrowful is a measure of your faith. So much of our Christian experience is put in waiting on God to act. Psalm 37, 7 says, Be still before the Lord and patiently wait for him. For God alone my soul waits in silence, Psalm 62 says. Psalm 130 says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. When you read Psalms, every time you see the word wait, you should kind of underline it a little bit. Mark it. Just notice where Scripture says that we are waiting on God. Do you have that kind of faith? The response to his revelation? Do you take God at his word and believe that he is as he says he is? And then trust that he'll provide for you in impossible situations? The author of Hebrews looks at the, the episodes of the Red Sea or Jericho and says, look, there's times when God has acted and demonstrated his faith. And so when you look, read through Hebrews, chapter 11 gives all these different examples about what people have done in the past, and then chapter 12 makes it about us. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings closely and run with endurance the race set out for us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set out for him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and he has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Our writer encourages his audience to lay aside every weight. The Greek word for weight, it can mean body bulk, it can mean excess weight. For spiritual athletes, it can mean having too many irons in the fire. It can mean having too many dissipating interests, too many branches of good things. Jesus says that God, the vine dresser, he prunes the best branches of any sucker, so that they can have more fruit, better quality fruit. The word can also mean overconfidence or arrogance. Um, it's almost hockey season, and my favorite team, the Colorado Avalanche, they won the Stanley Cup last year, and everything's great, but I am anticipating they're going to come into this new season, and they're going to be overly confident and arrogant, and they're going to lose. But the idea that a certain contest is a pushover or a breather or an easy day that just sets you up for failure. It's going to cripple an entire team by thinking that they have it made. And when we let down our concentration on Jesus, when we let go of our faith and leaning on God, we become, become distracted, and then all of a sudden, there's shocking surprises. And so for the Christian, the disciple, the person who is chasing after Christ, there's only one way to run the race successfully, and that is to heap our eyes on Jesus. And Hebrew says he's the author and pioneer of our faith, meaning that he is the one who designed the race. But not only did he design the race, but he is the perfecter. He's the one who completed it. He's the one who has finished the race, and we keep our eyes on him and do what he did. And so as we follow him, we need to persevere. The writer says we need to lay aside such weights. There's no place in the Christian life to carry these weights in addition to following Jesus. We need to set them aside. Um, there can't be any additional weight. There's no, to, there, there's any trust in ourselves, anything else that we're bringing to the table other than believing in God as being our Savior is going to get in the way. And it's kind of like burying our talents in the soil and then having the master come back. And what we want to be told is, well done, good and faithful servant. And the way to do that is with active and enduring faith. Last week, I sort of cheated on this sermon. Well, I use my resources. I got a group of teenagers who know the Bible pretty well, and so I took this text that I already had picked out, 
and I explained to them, I'm preaching on this, and here's what kind of goes into preaching. Here's some of the behind the scenes. And then I asked them to help me help you. And so we read the text, we studied it, we digested it, and the big takeaway is that it's very obvious that to have faith is to please God. That The author makes that clear. Verse 6 tells us that. And then the author makes it clear that there's all these different heroes of the faith, people in the Old Testament who have done this successfully, and so be like them. But what's not so clear is understanding this faith. One of my favorite questions I ask teenagers when I read a chunk of text is, at what point did you become bored? At what point did you become distracted? At what point did you stop following along and kind of go into your own tangent thoughts? And, and one of them said, well, verse 1. <laughs> I said, great, we, we didn't get anywhere. But verse 1 is saying what faith is. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. What does that even mean? And then one of my other students, they, they said, well, they went to the back of their Bible and they went in the concordance and they said, dang, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible about faith. There's a whole lot in here about faith. We base our, our salvation based on faith. But so much of us, we, we, we kind of nod our head to it and we understand what faith is a little bit and we just keep on going without really asking, how does this work? And so in seeking to understand, there's a whole lot of ways that people throughout the years have talked about faith. Um, just some of them, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of the things not seen. Faith is the constant outlook of trust and dependence towards God. Faith is the resilience and trust in God. Faith is combination of knowledge, assent, and affiance. Faith is a firm and certain knowledge. Faith is a solid certainty of what we hope for based on reality and solid, it's solid existence. The complete Jewish Bible, they, they don't even call it faith, they call it trusting. So they say trusting is being confident of what we hope for, convinced of the things we do not see. Do you have faith? Do you believe on the Lord Jesus with all of your heart? If so, you may hope to be saved. Do you have faith? Well, there's three questions I can ask that will help you answer that question. The first one is, do you trust in yourself? Do you trust in your own righteousness, your own ability to get yourself across the line? If there's just one atom of self-reliance, your faith really struggles, or maybe you don't have faith. The second question is, do you love Christ? Because to have faith in Christ brings love. So if you struggle to love Christ, really, really question, is this faith? Do you love his people? And then the third one is, with true faith, there's true obedience. Is your life a life that shows obedience? Because if you just say, yes, this is true, yes, I believe it, yes, I put my own, my, my own will into this, my own life is dedicated to this, but you don't actually do what it says, there's a problem. Anyone who declares that he believes Christ but yet doesn't live a holy life or pursue a holy life, they're making a mistake. So we don't trust our works for our salvation, but we know that true faith brings true action. And so let me ask again, do you have faith? Like the answer is either yes or no. There's no like, I don't know, or I don't care, or, or I'll get there someday, or Johnny doesn't like that. My, off, my answer to questions often is, that's tomorrow's problem. 
Um, do I have faith? Well, someday when the earth is reeling, when the world's being tossed, and God's going to summon us and give us, he'll, he'll condemn the faithless and he'll, unbelieving, and if you're wise, you're going to care about this now. You're going to say, I need to deal with this immediately. Do I have faith or do, not, do I not have faith? The only way to please God is with active and enduring faith. And so with all this on understanding faith and trying to wrap our head around do we believe or not, Christ is the object of that faith. And so we need to come back to remembering why is Christ the object of that faith? What did Christ do? Why is Christ worth it? And it all points back to the cross. For on the cross, he demonstrates he loves us. He restored the way to have that relationship with him, to be able to give him a fist bump. That, that's all through the cross. And, and while we're sinners, adulterers, we're chasing our own desires, chasing our own indulgences, our own rebellion, that's when he died on the cross for us because he loved us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 reads it this way, For I received from the Lord, I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night which he was betrayed, took bread, and after it, he had given thanks and broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Worship team and deacons and servers, we're, we're getting there. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is, cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and every time you drink it, remember me. For every time you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're told, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That is certain. You don't need to have any question, any doubt where you are standing with that. So cast yourself on his love, on his blood, his doing, his dying, his suffering, his kingship. And if you do, you will be saved. That, that is certain. And there's going to be a day, hopefully soon, that to not believe and not have faith is going to be a pretty bad day. If your faith is in Jesus alone, we're going into this time of communion. We're celebrating communion. And this is a time of remembrance of what Jesus did and what we set our faith in. And what First or Second Corinthians says is that we're doing it, proclaiming his death until he returns. And may that day be very soon. Amen.